Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Very small piece of follow-up from last episode. A friend who grew up in Eastern Europe uh, very gently corrected me uh, after the, the show was published that I had incorrectly pronounced the name of the founder of Acrivia as Rexep Rexepi. It turns out it would be pronounced, and I'm probably going to butcher this uh, as well if you speak Albanian, uh, but I was told it's Recep Recepi. So my apologies, Recep. Uh, I, I stand corrected. Better you than me. I can't pronounce people's names to save my life. So I'm, uh, as, as people have already commented on with some of my horrible pronunciations. Mm, yeah, well, an X followed by an H isn't something you're going to find very frequently, if at all, in the English language. Early on, when we started discussing this podcast, we created a shared document of topics that we wanted to cover. One of the topics that both of us had put on the list that we hadn't gotten around to was magic. I think both you and I have been fascinated with magic to some degree or another, and there, as we'll discuss, there are a lot of crossovers between magic and watchmaking. This week seems like a good week to talk about it, and unfortunately, over the weekend, uh, one of the greats of the magic world, uh, Ricky Jay, passed away, and so we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk a little bit about Ricky Jay, including a few really, really good videos of his and a good article about him, and also talk a little bit about some of the other magicians who have had influences with the watch world and sort of the mechanical world and uh, discuss a little bit about that and why it is that we are fascinated with magic. So do you recall the the first time you saw Ricky Jay perform? I don't know that I recall the first time I saw him do magic as a as a magic thing, like as a presentation of magic. I think the first time I ever saw Ricky Jay would have probably been a TV show or a movie. One of the things that Ricky did to make money through his life was act as a consultant for Hollywood. And he helped train actors to perform magic tricks in TV shows and movies. Uh, he also worked on some of the illusions for, for movies and TV shows and, and making those illusions work properly. And then on top of that, he himself showed up in a number of TV shows and movies. Uh, I know one of my favorite examples of him in a uh, a TV show or movie was in the, the HBO TV show Deadwood. He shows up as one of the hustlers uh, who's running a gambling house in Deadwood. Of course, he puts his hard handling skills to use in the, in the show, not necessarily to, uh, you know, as magic, but as a way of hustling the patrons of the gambling house. So, yeah, I, I don't know the first time that I ever saw him sort of do a magic bit. Um, most of it was him showing up as sort of a character actor in, in TV shows and movies. Now, when I brought it up, his uh, passing over the weekend, uh, I'd sent you a few a few things. Had you run into Ricky Jay before? Like, had you would ever come across him? In various capacities, yes. I would say, look, looking back now, I, in retrospect, I was oblivious 
to, to the fact that uh, it was it was Ricky Jay I had encountered. I, I read one of his books entitled Cards as Weapons when I was in my youth. That is how I learned to throw cards. So I, I learned to throw cards from Ricky Jay without knowing <laughs> it was Ricky Jay who, right. who taught me, or at least not having a face to put to the name because his name was obviously on the book, but it's not something that, that I retained. And it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that uh, it was him who had written the book. I would say Ricky Jay was not a, a household name for me growing up. I, I came of age in the era of, of David Blaine, and uh, mm. by comparison, there they're two very different artists. And if I were to compare their their sleight of hand, I'd say Ricky Jay's, to me, in in my opinion, is superior, simply because I, I've been able to replicate essentially every trick sleight of hand trick I've, I've seen david blaine do over the years uh, but mm. I, I am still flabbergasted by a number of the things that, that ricky jay can do and while i can catch the occasional slight uh, i'm just absolutely clueless sometimes as to how he pulls off what he does it's absolutely incredible his his skill as a, a card handler yeah i think that's one of the things that makes him stand out from uh, other artists like a, a david blaine somebody like a Ricky Jay, he, again, he's often sort of the man behind the the curtain who's discovering the ways of doing things and the ways of tricking people. Uh, so, for instance, if you remember The Illusionist and The Prestige, there are a number of magic bits in there that originally people thought were just movie magic, like people were using film techniques or camera tricks to to be able to do them. But in fact, they were actually Ricky Jay's tricks, and they were real tricks that he was uh you know that he had taught them to do on screen so yeah there, there's a big difference between somebody who's a performer versus somebody who's an actual magician and, and ricky jay is one of those sort of magicians magicians he he really did know his stuff and as you say his sleight of hand work is unbelievable i would say sleight of hand is hands down my favorite flavor of magic i'll, I'll take in a show of grand illusions just for kicks but it it doesn't hold the same wow factor for me as the sheer <laughs> magnitude of skill from years of distilled practice that unfolds in a matter of moments with nothing more than a few coins or or a deck of cards in the hands of a master like ricky jay or you know ricky jay's uh, mentor di vernon and, and folks like that or Slidini, even. He's seeing old clips of Slidini is just, it's unreal. He just makes cards appear out of nowhere. I grew up in an era when, you know, previous to David Blaine, it was David Copperfield. You know, I remember as a kid gathering around and watching some of the David Copperfield specials. And one of the things that's, that's always disappointed me is knowing how the David Copperfield effects were done and seeing just how much of it was being done through camera tricks you know and things like that so you it was very easy to to sort of see you weren't being tricked necessarily through great skill but through you know through some kind of an obvious illusion one of the things that's interesting when you when you watch somebody like a ricky jay work or as you mentioned uh, di vernon uh, somebody like that even when you know what he's doing and you know the move that he's about to make you'd still never see the move that he makes you never see what he's done uh, he's just so good at 
hiding what he's doing and he is so clean at his manipulations that you just can't follow it and that that's always um that's always impressed me and it takes an incredible amount of skill and devotion to doing that mm-hmm. i know that um most of his life he spent 10 or 12 hours a day every day practicing with a deck of cards and practicing those manipulations and that's something that you just don't get through the big flashy magicians they they just don't practice to that degree uh, because they're relying on other on other ways of sort of fooling people yeah their props are literally propping them up exactly like that their skill is so heavily invested in the props and everything that is happening behind them whereas i mean there are gimmicks that exist but it is almost entirely within the the hands and, and the skill of the performer right you could hand somebody like Ricky Jay a deck of cards and he could do things with that you gave him that you controlled that you you know you knew were clean cards and he could do things that would blow your mind and that's something that that uh these sort of stage magicians often can't do that's not that's not what they're they need their props to be able to uh, to pull off their illusions mm-hmm. yeah a great example of this for me is that I was out for dinner one evening with some friends and uh, a friend of a friend was there uh, and he's a drummer and he's played for a number of bands over the years, usually filling in. Uh, so, you know, big names like Shania Twain and whatnot, he would, you know, be the, the backup drummer for. Then we're sitting there at the table and it's taking forever for the food to arrive. And uh, he grabs two utensils and he starts fiddling with them. And all of a sudden he's drumming out this beat on random plates and, and glasses that he sort of pulled a, a note out of just by experimenting with them. And he was able to just riff there on the table with like riffraff. Meanwhile, you can give someone with very little experience on the drums the best set of drums in the world, and they're still going to sound like garbage. Or do you give someone with the, the talent and the skill to play the drums a coffee can and uh, some chopsticks and they're gonna be able to hammer out a beat absolutely there's a a really great scene at the opening of the documentary called it might get loud uh, which is a a sort of an exploration of music with uh, jimmy page jack white and uh, the edge from u2 and it, it this documentary opens with Jack White taking some found objects, including a, a board and a few nails and a guitar string and a pop bottle. And he's got a single string and a um, pickup for an electric guitar. And in the course of about a minute, he sits there and builds this one string slide guitar and then ends up playing you know, something incredible with it. Right. And it's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that you see with a master of an art, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what it is that they have. It doesn't, uh, you know, they don't need, you know, a Stradivari violin to be able to, to play, you know, incredible music. They, they just need to have, uh, you know, something that, that will make the noise that they, that they need to play on. Uh, again, you, you take a, take this, you know, the example of, of a master card manipulator and you give them a set of cards and it doesn't matter that they've never seen that deck of cards before. They can still do incredible things with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So just after the news of Ricky Jay's passing, you sent along a, a documentary that I had not seen before called Deceptive Practice. It uh, just 
sort of takes a, a look at a lot of his mentors over the years and, and how he came to learn and, and master what he did. A, an interesting tidbit that I, I pulled from that that I was not aware of is that uh, Di Vernon was actually Canadian and not just Canadian, but was born right here in Ottawa where we are recording tonight. The full name of that that documentary is Deceptive Practice, The Mysteries and Mentors of Ricky Jay. And I think that the mentors part of that is is extremely important because he does focus a lot on the master magicians that he was able to learn from. Uh, Di Vernon is probably the most significant of those. And as you say, he did. Uh, he was born here in Ottawa, although I can't imagine he was born in 1894 in Ottawa. And, uh, I, you know, it's, Ottawa is not really a thriving metropolis now. It's, uh, you know, it's still a pretty small city. But 1894, this Ottawa wouldn't have been very far removed from being the logging town that it started as. So I, I can't imagine that it would have been an exciting place to, to live in 1894. Well, you can understand why he wanted to relocate to L.A. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, so Di Vernon uh, ended up spending quite a bit of his life and, and career in and around the Magic Castle in Los Angeles and uh, actually attracted uh, quite uh, an array of talent to migrate there, including Ricky Jay. And uh, he, he taught and passed on much of his knowledge in, in bits and, and pieces here and there. You were, you were lucky if you got past a, a little scrap of what he had uh, hidden in, in his vast inventory of, of skills and, and tricks. Uh, but he certainly was a, a treasure in the, the magic community and uh, one of the, the greatest sleight-of-hand artists to have ever lived. Uh, we've talked a lot of on this show about passing knowledge on and sharing knowledge and how, as I've mentioned before, one of my favorite quotes from Philippe Dufour is, graveyards are full of secrets. And famously, magic is very secretive. You know, there's extreme penalties in the community if you reveal your secrets to or other people's secrets you know it's sort of unfortunate in some ways i i, I know one point in the in the documentary or was it in the rock documentary there's unfortunately i've, I've read i read a great uh, that great new yorker piece about ricky jay and watched deceptive practice all within about two hours of each other so i i confusing various uh, quotes from from each source um but at one point Ricky Jay mentions how it's unfortunate that the sleight of hand artists that are coming up now have never seen Di Vernon perform in person. Mm -hmm. And we are now going to be able to say the same thing about Ricky Jay there, even though there's video footage of, of him performing. Unfortunately, there are people who will never get a chance to see him perform, who will go on to become some of the great uh, sleight of hand artists and i have to wonder how much of what he knew is now lost because you know they are so secretive about uh what happens in in you know the, the effects that they're using because i i'm pretty sure there are probably effects that he learned i know there's one that he sort of coyly talks about in the documentary that he learned from Di vernon and you know, he quickly says, and no, I won't tell you what it is. I wonder if he's ever told anybody what that is and if he's ever passed that on. And it's sort of unfortunate if, if that's happened. 
Yeah, that line was indeed in the, the documentary. A parallel to that that I found interesting, which is in the article that it, that you sent me, was the, the anecdote about a young magician coming up to him and, and um, basically lavishing him with praise and telling him about how he did so many of, of Ricky Jay's tricks. And, and Ricky Jay uh, essentially paralleled it to him coming into his house and stealing his TV uh, because he's, he's stealing his work rather than taking the, the core concepts and building off it. Now, I'm sure there is a lot of, of knowledge that, that has passed away with Ricky Jay, but at the same time, he has amassed a, a treasure trove of, of literature. And if anyone wanted to learn and, and know, I would say, a good volume of what Ricky Jay knows, they they could digest his library the same way that, that he did over the course of his life, because he has a, a lot of rare and obscure literature and a lot of his tricks were founded in in very old and forgotten tomes of of, of magic. You're right. There there is obviously the ability to go back and in, into old books and find a lot of this information, but then at the same time as we know some of those books uh become difficult to find just because they get sucked up by collectors and and sort of hidden away and they're no longer available especially in the magic world where people don't want that information being shared out there. Tamara did bring up an interesting point the the other day. Uh, one of the anecdotes that comes up in the article about Ricky Jay is uh, the dissemination of uh, an extremely important collection of magic books that he was curator of at one point. David Copperfield ends up getting the collection at auction Ricky Jay is not particularly happy about it for various reasons that, that are worth reading in the in the article, but I won't go into. As Tamara brought up, she wonders what's going to end up with his collection. And I can pretty much guarantee you that, that David Copperfield will not end up with that collection. I, I suspect if there is some sort of provision that it either goes to a specific person or it's only available for certain people to be able to acquire. I can't imagine that he would want it to be acquired by David Copperfield after that incident. I know that Artifice, Ruse, and Sutterfuge at the card table was one of his primary sources early on in his life about card magic because that was a book that was written in the 19th century by card hustlers, not magicians, but men who were trying to hustle money out of other men at a card table. And for them, screwing up a trick wasn't just a, oh, uh, you saw what I did and, and you now know the trick. It, it often had serious consequences for them. He learned a lot of what he used in his life from that. And of course, a huge amount of what he was able to do and show off came from the fact that he practiced hours and hours every day for most of his life. I think he was saying that the earliest magic show he gave was when he was four years old mm -hmm. so and he died at the age of 72 so at the very least you know he had been working as a magician for 68 years and i think if any of us ended up practicing anything for 10 percent of the time that ricky jay did we'd probably be considered masters at it yes it sounds impossible but from everything that I, that i've seen of his skill and from things that that i've heard Ricky J was capable of shuffling a deck and keeping track of the position of every single card in that deck. So at any given point in time, he knew exactly where to 
find a card. If you were to say count down through the cards, what have you, but knowing the order of the cards in the deck as he was shuffling it so that he could bend the deck to his will to reveal a, a given card at a given point as he wished. And to pull something like that off, you need to be practicing at that level with that number of hours in a day. And uh, like I said, it sounds impossible, but I, I've seen tricks that he's done where he very much is is shuffling and manipulating the cards and boom, is able to lay them out in perfect order. It is remarkable the way that he's able to shuffle. And of course, I understand that some of that is is fake shuffling. Some of it's a, you know, a false shuffle. However, seeing some of that, it isn't a false shuffle. And he is actually keeping track of those cards and manipulating the deck so that he knows exactly where where each card is. And it's an amazing seeing some of his sort of practice routines and watching what he does. Uh, along with Deceptive Practice being a, an excellent documentary of his life, there are also some amusing sort of performances in there. And on top of that, there's a couple of um, of other videos that we'll link to, uh, some older videos that show more of his performance. Uh, Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants was a show that he did uh, back in the 90s, I believe it was, that was filmed. and uh, And it was sort of an hour-long special I think that was done for HBO and that was excellent and and it, you'd see more of his routine and you see more of his pattern and how he how he performs and you see him performing some classics like the the cup and balls and uh, that is a it's a remarkable thing to see him do uh, some of the work that he does everything from you know manipulation to memorization his apparently his ability to remember things was remarkable and uh and so that it's an interesting interesting look at at some of what he was able to do and sort of see him in his prime showing off some of those skills do you practice any sort of sleight of hand at all i do every once in a while and i i over the years i've learned a fair bit about sleight of hand magic because that, just like you i find it fascinating i i love i love knowing what's going on for instance, when I watch something like the cup and balls, I know how the cup and balls works. And I know how to watch the cup and balls routine and watch the things that they, you know, the magician doesn't want you watching. Some people don't like knowing how a trick is done. I find it fascinating because when you find someone who really knows how to do the cup and balls, you get a, a an even higher appreciation of what it is that they're doing because you know what they're doing and you still can't see what they're doing. So I, I've practiced with things like the cup and balls routine. I've practiced a couple of coin slights. I've practiced a little bit of card manipulation, but I, I've never spent the time to, you know, sort of dedicated the time to do it well because I, I just, I have too many other things that I, I want to be able to get good at. And so unfortunately that I've just never been very good at these uh, but I do, I do understand a fair number of concepts of magic, and I, I do enjoy watching great magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does take practice to stay sharp. I would say I would, I would be more confident, or would have been more confident ten years ago performing for someone than than now. Right at this stage of my life, I'll I'll bust out a little trick impromptu here and there just for fun, uh, but uh, I would not be able to 
sustain that for 20 minutes or, or half hour at a dinner party like I, I could have a decade ago. Yeah, and I think that somebody somebody to get really good at magic, you really have to pick it up at the right time in your life where you have the time to be able to spend hours a day working on it. And whether that's because you are young and you just have free time to be able to do that kind of thing or you happen to be stuck in a job that allows you to do that kind of thing or whatever it is. You know, I, I've known coworkers who will sit there on the phone and all they do for you know eight hours a day while they're on the phone is manipulate cards and you watch them doing that and that's how they practice but i I think unless you have the time to dedicate to that kind of thing you're never going to get to to the kind of skill level that uh, that these guys are getting to yeah my my hands tend to be otherwise occupied when i'm working (laughs) and that's one of the problems that i have too i'm i'm either working on a computer and building stuff on a computer or i am making things with my hands in the shop and so you know manipulating a deck of cards while you're trying to operate a lathe is not uh, advised so have you read the artificers and subterfuge at the card table i flipped through it i haven't had a chance to read it in depth and it's it's something i've meant to to read a little bit more critically than i have in the past yeah, I, I need to read through it a little bit better and and sort of get a better understanding of what it is that um, that they're doing and how they're how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not a book that uh, I've ever picked up, uh, but from what I gleaned from the the documentary, that was Di Vernon's textbook as well. Growing up, that's what what he the foundation uh, of his skill as a, a sleight of hand artist. And another small quote, which I'd say I'm paraphrasing because I, I didn't take notes while watching the documentary uh, but there's this anecdote uh, about die sitting there on a bench outside of the magic castle and just watching people put on their their sport coats and noticing the the subtle differences between them all and i think it was something along the lines of him relaying to ricky that much of sleight of hand is the duplication of natural action so taking a natural action making it seem natural while subtly hiding the actual action you're performing i think it sums up quite well the the art of sleight of hand you, your your hands are doing something they they appear to be doing something uh, when in reality they are doing something very different yeah absolutely that that's a, a great anecdote from the uh, from the, the documentary and and what it taught ricky about how to to deceive people Uh, i I think one of the other things that i love about the way he looked at it because he approached learning this early on from books that were designed to deceive people for taking their money right again these these hustlers and um you know who are making money off of this and one of the things that i've always admired about a, a number of magicians is that they even though they know that a lot of what they're doing is rooted in that deception and and in that, you know, being a a hustler and a hoaxer, they approach magic from a different point of view. They're using those same skills, but they're telling people, I'm here to fool you. I'm not getting anything out of you other than your amazement that I've done something. They're not trying to trick you to take your money or to, uh, you know, to, to, to steal your watch or something like that, even though they, they could easily, um, and sometimes do. And sometimes do, yes. Uh, <laughs> some some magicians do do that. One of the, my favorite lines from this is when he says, magic is inherently honest. And even though they're deceiving you, it is inherently honest because they're telling you that they're going to deceive you. They're, they're telling you exactly what they're going to do to you. 
they're going to fool you into believing that something has happened that hasn't happened. And I, I like that idea that through deception, it magic is an inherently honest thing that they're that they're showing you. And there are a number of of art, a number of magicians that I admire, people like Penn and Teller, uh, people like Eric Mead. They they've all been very upfront about that. They they believe that you shouldn't be using this to con people, but in instead to amaze them. Yeah, amaze and delight. So, do you own any gimmicks? Which is that I guess the technical term for a magic trick or a, a prop, something that is not as it seems. That allows you to do something that is not as it seems. No, I've intentionally never learned a trick that requires a gimmick. And I've always felt that if I was going to learn something, if I was going to learn a trick, that it should be something that I could do with any version of the object that I'm working on. So for instance, if I'm doing the cup and balls routine, you know, I have a set of cups and balls that I've that I've practiced with and that I'm more familiar with, but the techniques that I'm using should work with conceivably any cup that's the same sort of size and any ball that's the same sort of size that I'm used to. Hmm. Uh, same thing with uh, card tricks or or a coin coin manipulation. Uh, I've always felt that if I'm going to learn a card trick. I should be able to do it with any deck of cards that's been given to me. I've never practiced with things like marked cards. Marked cards are very easy to use uh, once you, you know, sort of you know what you're doing with them. But the problem with that is that you're then relying on your marked cards to do the trick. Mm. You know, I certainly don't blame people who do use some sort of a, a gimmick for being able to perform magic because... Frankly, it does open up a whole other world of possibilities in terms of what you can do. Um, but I, I know for myself, I've always felt that that's not the way I would want to approach it. I briefly just defined a, what a gimmick was there. For people who have been tracking with us this far, they've, they've probably caught on by now. But just in case, how would you define slights or, or sleight of hand? as a term i think any kind of sleight of hand or manipulation is the act of of taking an object with your hands and doing something with it that's unexpected so for instance in in a simple a simple case you might take a coin in one hand and pretend to pass it to the other but instead of passing it to the other hand you've retained it in your first hand so you've got a coin in your right hand you pretend to pass it to your left hand, but you haven't actually done it. Or, you know, the classic one that you see people do with kids where you pull a coin from their ear, right? And so obviously the coin doesn't actually come from the kid's ear. It's come from their hand, but it's a situation where you have, you know, the it's a situation where you have that coin in your hand, you've hidden it, and you're then manipulating it to appear in your hand and as if it's coming out of the ear. So that's what I sort of how I define sleight of hand. And it can be used for any number of different things with any number of different objects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it shares a, a root word with, with sly. That's a, a cunningness and skill. And, and when it's come to magicians uh, and magic that's being performed, nearly all of my favorite magicians are sleight of hand artists. So people like Ricky Jay. Uh, another one of my favorites is Eric Mead as a modern performer. 
and again, he's another sort of magician's magician. Uh, if you were to query some of the top magicians that you've heard of in the world and you say, you know, who are the who are the top sleight of hand artists in the world? Uh, Ricky Jay's name would, of course, come up in that. Uh, he was, you know, he was certainly one of those people. But Eric Mead is somebody whose name would pop up at the top of that list quite uh, quite consistently. There, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of videos of the work that he's done. Now, probably the best video I've seen of Eric Mead performing was on Penn and Teller's Fool Us last season. And he shows off a trick that he's modified slightly from another magician who unfortunately had passed away. Uh, and it's done with, with coins and a leather tube that had uh, open ends on both ends. And uh, watching him perform again, if you know the trick that he's doing, you can see a lot of what's going on. But there are a few things in there that he's doing that are just remarkable. You know, watching him perform that is just, it's a joy to watch. Even watching it over and over again on video, it's very, very difficult to see what he's doing, even when you know that he's, you know, he's doing something and what it is that he's doing. So now that we'll put a link to that video in, in the, the show notes. It's worth watching because it's, uh, it's amusing. If you've never seen Penn and Teller Fool Us, it's an interesting idea for a show because you have two magicians, Penn and Teller, who are well-known. Penn obviously being the the loud one who is more of the performer. And Teller, who is, again, one of the, the top magicians in the world. He is really, again, he's a magician's magician. And one of the things that I always enjoy about watching that clip is watching Teller's face as Eric Mead performs the trick. Because Teller knows the trick. He knows exactly what the trick is supposed to be, except for the little twist that Eric puts in it. Even being a master magician at sleight of hand himself, he's unable to tell what it is that Eric Mead is doing. I, I always enjoy watching that kind of thing. And again, if you can see someone performing for another master magician and fooling them like that, it is really remarkable. And it, and it's, as I said, it's a joy to watch Teller watching that particular display. And really, so much of it does come down to the presentation and, and storytelling as well, which is, I think, in his own unique way, Ricky Jay was very good at. One of his funnier bits is uh, The Four Queens, which uh, mm. I had <laughs> I had fun doing um, a, a trick with a somewhat similar storyline when I was like eight years old, and it involved a lot of math to pull it off with, with the cards. Uh, but I had my whole little story, and, and you know, it was entertaining for people. Uh, but it doesn't hold a candle to to Ricky Jay's Four Queens, which is uh, a, a very impressive uh, close-up magic trick that that he performs. Uh, that's always one of my favorite tricks from Ricky Jay. It, it, there's there are a number of great stories that he does tell, and it, it's of course when you watch some of these videos. Uh, you can see these artists performing the same trick a couple of different times and you can hear their pattern. You can hear the way that they've maybe modified it slightly over the years, but you sort of get a sense of, of familiarity every time you watch it. And um, that's one I've seen a few different versions of that. And it's, uh, it's quite good. I think something we'll end up talking a little bit more about in a future episode is how magic ties in with some of the world of automata and magic clocks and things like that because i think that deserves a, a little bit more depth than, than what we could do tonight there's certainly a, a huge tie a huge crossover between 
the world of magic and the world of mechanical making, just because a lot of these tricks, a lot of these illusions uh, are reliant upon sort of clockwork mechanisms. But there's there's a, a long history of, of a crossover between the two worlds. Hmm, absolutely, particularly with the, the early magic, because so much of magic is, well, there's a lot of the sleight of hand type stuff, but a lot of illusions and, and things like that are, are based and, and founded in cutting edge fringe technologies that the, the general populace is just not aware of or doesn't believe can exist. And as we alluded to in one of our earliest episodes, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And in a lot of ways, clockwork mechanisms and whatnot 200 years ago was indistinguishable from magic. And, and to riff off you a little bit uh, from those those early episodes, I think a lot of what Ricky Jay was able to achieve is pulling up sufficiently ancient tricks that and, and mastering them to such effect that it blows the minds of, of modern day magicians. And I think the other the other half of that that's impossible to discount is the amount of work that these master magicians are willing to put in to make an effect work. And that's something I, I know the teller has talked about in uh, when he's discussed some of his work. And he's had people who've told him, they're like, oh, well, you know, this is this is the only way I can think of doing that. But that's ridiculous. The amount of work that would be involved in doing that or doing it that way is just, it's preposterous. And that's exactly what they rely on. They, they rely on the idea that you don't realize to what lengths they are willing to go to, to fool you and, and manipulate you. And that in some cases means practicing for years. Uh, I know Teller has talked about the fact that they've had tricks in development for 10 or 11 years that have never made it into their show because they're not ready yet. And most people can't even fathom the idea of practicing something for 10 or 11 years without a payoff like that. Between the two things, between the the sufficiently ancient techniques in this case and the the desire to put in an astronomical amount of time to to perfect it, that those two things are what allow these magicians to fool you and and be able to do what they do. So for anyone who might not have been familiar with Ricky Jay's legacy prior to this, where would you recommend they they start? I think the two things you need to start with is the New Yorker article about him. Uh, I believe it's Ricky Jay's Magical Secrets. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a long article, uh, and it's uh, it's going to take you a couple of minutes to read, but it is worthwhile. And it is really the blueprint for deceptive practice the documentary that was published a few years ago about him and that's something that i would uh, i'd recommend going through after you've read the the new yorker article uh, because then you you sort of have an idea of where the the story is going but you get to see the visuals of it you get to see what he's doing and that's that's worthwhile and if you enjoyed that then um we'll put some some links to a few other things like uh, ricky james 52 assistance into uh into the show notes and you can watch that and enjoy it but certainly, at the very least, I'd recommend reading the New Yorker article and watching Deceptive Practice. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. 
You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at underthelope, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. I just found a a story that I, I love, always love about him. Deborah Barron, a screenwriter in Los Angeles where Jay lives, once invited him to a New Year's Eve dinner party at her home. About a dozen other people attended. Well past midnight, everyone gathered around a coffee table as Jay, at Barron's request, did close-up card magic. When he had performed several dazzling illusions and seemed ready to retire, a guest named Mort said, Come on, Ricky, why don't you show us something truly amazing? Baron recalls that at that moment, the look in Ricky's eyes was like, Mort, you have just fucked the wrong person. Jay told Mort to name a card, any card. Mort said the three of hearts. After shuffling, Jay gripped the deck in the palm of his right hand and sprung it, cascading all 52 cards so they traveled the length of the table and pelted an open wine bottle. Okay, Mort, what was your card again? The three of hearts. Look inside the bottle. Mort discovered curled inside the neck the three of hearts. The party broke up immediately. Yeah, it's from the, the New Yorker article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've always loved that uh, that story because you can get the sense that that's exactly the kind of person that he was, right? Like it was just one of those, you know, I'm willing to be a, I'm willing to amuse you and I'm willing to to sort of play to the crowd. But then if you uh, if you screw with me, I'm going to make sure you, you regret it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you'd have to be there. And same for the, the $2 or two $1 bills into the $2 bill. Oh, when he's in the in the shower. <laughs> the fact that he was able to pull that off in the shower is remarkable because the planning and forethought into, you know, that must have been put into that is... Uh... <laughs> Showering with a false thumb. <laughs> but again, that's the kind of, that's the, an example of the, the level of effort that somebody is willing to go to to, uh, to pull that kind of thing off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, that's a neat thing too from the the documentary. Just like Ricky Jay being able to go to these guys' houses when he's like four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and have like one-on-one performances with these masters. Oh yeah, you know you have to imagine that if after being exposed to some of those people as a child, if he hadn't become a world-class magician, you know you'd have to wonder what the heck was going on. And you know, like it, I think I have to imagine that anybody who was exposed to that to that level of skill in any art would just pick it up enough of it to be, to be quite gifted as it, you know, as it was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, uh, that would have been a remarkable, uh, getting, you know, getting access to that. And of course you see people who, you know, who ha- do go on to become magicians, world-class magicians. And in some cases, all they needed was to be exposed to, you know, an uncle who was an amateur magician and, and taught them some basic stuff when they were seven years old or whatever. And that's enough to sort of slingshot them into it. So I can't imagine having some of the top magicians in the world, you know, sort of at your beck and call and uh, and teaching you how to do amazing sleight of hand. I, yeah, I can't even imagine how effective that would be. Now, one of the other things I, I haven't seen yet, and I kept, I heard about it a couple of years ago, and um, I had forgotten to look into it. It was a... Uh, a documentary called delt i don't know if you've heard of this at all like a yeah 
the guy is blind. Uh, his name is Rick Turner, I think it is. Okay. Um, he's completely blind, and he's able to do incredible card manipulation. Wow. Does he have a Braille deck? No. Interesting. He showed up on, uh, yeah, he showed up on uh, Fool Us. That's how I first uh, first came across him. Now, in the vein of being blind, have you, you ever noticed the, the hidden eight on the eight of diamonds? I did, yes. I just saw that recently, the very first time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's something that somebody pointed out to me years ago. And I, I mean, I didn't notice it on my own. You know, somebody did actually point it out to me. But yeah, that's one of those things that until you until you see it, you never see it. It's the FedEx arrow in a deck of playing cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's one of those ones. that's kind of amusing that you can't see, you can't unsee. <laughs>